Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and curious readers of the Hebrew Bible. I'm Rosie Candlethal, PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And I am Paul Essa, a PhD student in Hebrew Bible at Yale University. Our co-hosts Rachel Rand and Tim McNinch are off this week. So Rosie, that puts you in the hot seat for this week, the fifth Sunday of Pentecost, July 2nd, 2023. Um, if you are following along with this summer, we have been navigating through the RCL's uh, semi-continuous strand of readings, which brings us to Genesis 22, 1 through 14, the binding of Isaac. Oops. Top one. That's right, Paul. We are going for the jugular this week uh, in many ways, as we'll explain. And just as a preliminary word here for preachers who are deciding which text to preach from, as is the case throughout Ordinary Time, the Revised Common Lectionary offers two different sets of Hebrew Bible readings throughout the season following Pentecost, otherwise known as Ordinary Time. One strand of readings in year A progresses semi-continuously through Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. highlighting the theme of covenant. And the other strand of readings is related thematically or is complementary to the gospel lections for those dates. For what it's worth, I've said that I think the semi-continuous strand of readings for year A, which walk us through this theme of covenant, supports a broader preaching task in year A's lectionary, um, which brings the congregation through the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, that also means that this week uh, we fall upon the troubling but absolutely fundamental story of Abraham's near sacrifice of his son Isaac as that relates to covenant, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So while it may be hard to understand, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his own son as an offering to God contributes deeply to the notion of covenant as it's developed in scripture and tradition, both Jewish and Christian. I will acknowledge that this is not an easy text to preach, and I think folks would welcome some help from you, Rosie. You know, it's a little tricky because what we get at the end of the passage is that Abraham is praised for his faithfulness. That means that he's loving God so much that he's willing to kill for God. In, in, and some of the things that I'm asking myself here is, how does faithfulness to God and murder work together in one passage, right? It's really difficult. Mm. Um, but Rosie, you began to make a point here about covenant. So I'm curious about how you see this story contributing to notions of covenant in both Jewish and Christian traditions. Right. Well, the story is so deeply ingrained in tradition that it's referred to by both Jewish and Christian interpreters simply as the binding of Isaac or the Akedah because of that Hebrew stem, ayin kof dalit, which means to bind. So akad in verse nine of Genesis 22. This is the only place where we find this word in the Hebrew Bible. But also, I think this may be the only story that's referred to regularly by everyone with a Hebrew shorthand, right? So I don't know, Paul, if you know of any others, but when we say Akedah, everyone understands what that story is, Jewish, Christian. um, And I don't know any other story that kind of goes by a Hebrew nickname. Right, right, right. Honestly, nothing really comes to mind. But if I'm right, I, I think this story features also in the Quran for Muslims, right? Of course, you know, some of the details uh, are different and it is very unclear if the son of Abraham in that passage in the Quran is actually Isaac. But there's something about submission, you know, something about sacrifice, you know, in that in that portion. And 
uh, it is celebrated by Muslims um, on Eid Eid Adha, right? Which sounds very similar to Akedah. <laughs> so that's the only mm. thing that really comes to mind. I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with um, Islam and Muslim traditions, but I can certainly say uh, that both in Jewish and Christian imagination, this story has captured and influenced tradition and practice in both of these faiths of Jewish and Christian faiths. Mm -hmm. Now, in order to appreciate why, we really have to remember again in vivid detail everything that's come before in the life of Abraham, right? So mm -hmm. Abraham is venerated as the father of faith um, in both Jewish and Christian, as you point out as well, in, in Muslim tradition as well. Mm -hmm. And rather early on, Jewish tradition associated Mount Moriah, uh, this is the place uh, that's located in the chapter for uh, the sacrifice, that place, Moriah, is the site of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. That's how powerfully this story in tradition seeped into popular imagination. The That's agony right. represented here in this story, the choice to preserve a son's life and everything mm -hmm. that represented or to sacrifice him, as you say, simply to murder him when God asked That's right. to, to appreciate the particular poignance and pain of this um, sacrifice requires some background, though. So mm -hmm. the semi-continuous strand of readings have already helped us to remember, first, Abraham's call and the promise made to him in Genesis 12. Mm -hmm. And a few weeks ago, we talked about how God called Abraham to make a journey on trust alone, mm -hmm. leaving his homeland, everything familiar, and that somehow God would make him and his descendants a blessing to all nations and that they would possess a land as yet unseen. Mm -hmm. The week following, we listened to Sarah's laughter in Genesis 18. Mm -hmm. Here, a response to the three divine strangers who claim she'll conceive a child of her own at the age of 90. And in that yeah. story, we were reminded, right? We were reminded of Abraham and Sarah's advanced age and their long struggle with infertility, the lengths to which they've already gone to maintain faith in God's promises, which, mind you, depend on having a living heir. Mm. And last week, Paul, you led us through the preceding chapter, Genesis 21, in which we're reminded of that story in which Abraham sends away his firstborn son by Hagar, Sarah's slave Ishmael. Abraham's already given up one son. And mm -hmm. now, as we come to Genesis 22, it seems as though this very old man is about to lose the other. Mm. So the binding of Isaac here in Genesis 22 is closely connected to everything in his story that comes before, everything that has come in the life of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and their respective children. Mm. I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying, Rosie. The Akedah gains its uh, narrative power because on some level, we have followed Abraham's life with such great detail. We have gotten to know him and his struggles. We have heard him talking with God on numerous occasions. Uh, but you've already outlined the ways that Abraham has already proved himself faithful. So why does God want this from him again? You know, what does what does this have to do with the covenant? Right. And that is the fundamental question, Paul. Who is this God that should demand such a monstrous demonstration of devotion? But who also in that question is Abraham, who mm -hmm. should respond with quiet obedience, right? Mm -hmm. God is said in this first verse of Genesis 22 to test Abraham, Nissa. But this information is only available to the reader, not to Abraham. Mm. Just as in the book of Job, Abraham's kept in the dark and the situation seems real for him, not a test or a trial. And that's important for us to grasp. 
Abraham does not know that in this first verse, when God says, take your son, if you will, now that's my translation of the Hebrew imperative with the particles. So, kakna et binka, take, if you will, your son, your only one whom you love, Isaac, and lech lecha, go forth to Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mount that I will show you. Now, the Hebrew makes certain deliberate links to Genesis 12, right? Into that initial call uh, and the response of Abraham. In that chapter, Abraham was commanded also to lech lecha, to go forth to a land that God would show him. That phrase only appears in these two passages, in Genesis 12 and 22. We are meant to hear a resonance that draws us back to where Genesis 12, to God's initial call of Abraham to leave, quote, your land, the land of your people and your father's house. And we hear that echo now again in Genesis 22, your son, your only one, Isaac, whom you love. Mm. In Genesis 12, Abraham builds an altar at the oak tree of Moreh, and here in Genesis 2, he builds an altar at the similar sounding Moriah. What we have here is a careful crafting of these two events as bookends in the life of Abraham. So with the initial call of Abraham in Genesis 12, God commanded him to leave everything he'd ever known, everything familiar and dear, and follow God to a land unknown, to trust God and God's promises. Here in Genesis 22, Again, God asks Abraham to leave his son Isaac on an altar, to abandon the hope of descendants through him, mm-hmm. to sacrifice this dearly loved child and the promises he made possible, to trust God somehow to make it right, to keep his side of the covenant, even though this was the same God that had made all those promises in the first place. Yeah. Relationship with God is a little complex in the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> And we might remember that like Job, God had blessed Abraham, right? He had become rich, powerful, and influential. The only thing that he lacked was a son, a heir, right? And with Isaac, there was hope. The test that God devises goes right for that hope, that single only hope that he had, and forces Abraham toward an unthinkable choice. It is one that holds us in horror and fascination to this day. I think horror is the right word. And the narrative details heighten our sense of dread and suspense in the story. What will happen? How far will God take this test? Mm -hmm. And we're not privy to what was in Abraham's heart or Isaac's heart, but there is no outward resistance from Abraham. No protest, no hesitation. Yeah. Yeah. It it is strange that Abraham doesn't protest because I I can imagine a lot of us would. I would, right? This is the same man who in Genesis 18, when God condemns the the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, batters with God to save them. People Abraham did not even know. Abraham edges God down from 50 to 40 to 30 until he finally gets God to agree not to destroy the city if 10 righteous persons could be found within it. But here, he does not even attempt to negotiate. That's right. That's what that's, strictly obeys. Yeah. So in verse three, right, it says just simply early the next morning, Abraham sets out from Beersheba with his son, his two slaves and a donkey saddled with the wood for that sacrifice. They walk for three days and Abraham is said to lift his eyes and he can see Maria from afar. Now, I can only imagine the dread and agony that Abraham must have felt as they neared their destination. Abraham orders his slaves to wait while he and Isaac go up to worship. Abraham puts the wood for the offering onto Isaac's back, 
and he himself carries the fire and the knife. Now, this is no ordinary knife. When I say, um, again, there are details here that raise the horror of this moment. Mm. This is a rare Hebrew word, ma'achalet. The knife is closer to a sword. It's large and heavy, appropriate for killing a struggling animal quickly, right? So just, again, all these details add up, right? So Isaac wonders aloud to his father where the sheep for the burnt offering is. But his father simply says, God will see to it, avoiding a direct answer to his Mm. son. And so we wonder too about Abraham's lengths of deception here, both of his son (laughs) and Sarah and the servants when he says, hey, we'll be right back. When they arrive at the place, the action agonizingly slows down, step by excruciating step. Abraham builds the altar. Then he lays the wood. Then he binds his son. Then he lays his son's body on the altar on top of that wood. Then he picks up his knife and suddenly, urgently, there's a voice from heaven at the very last moment calling Abraham. Abraham, don't raise your hand against the boy or harm him in any way. For now I know that you fear God since you haven't withheld your son, your only one from me. Now, it's an extraordinary dramatic reprieve at the last moment, but we can't forget the horror that came before, right? Yeah, and it's really interesting that you point out Abraham's own reaction, right? As the, you know, the, the scenes change and events draw closer and closer, the way he tries to avoid questioning and, you know, sort of like avoid details and explanation. It's just like all of that, you know, is evidence to like what he is probably thinking and feeling about this whole process, mm. even though he quite doesn't say it yet right um mm-hmm. so how might how might you help preachers with this one in terms of preaching tips and maybe let's start with pitfalls i can imagine a few already but you know <laughs> right there's quite a lot of places where you could fall down on this one right yeah. so one major pitfall i think that you've already kind of pointed toward um is smoothing over the akada yeah. right to to make some sort of apology uh for god and for abraham There is the temptation of letting God or Abraham off the hook. Hey, it's just a test that's in the, in the text. It's not a real human sacrifice that God intends. But I I think as we pulled out the narrative details, this is meant to be a tough story. And the narrator uh, puts in those details because they deserve our wrestling with it seriously. And for a while, I think interpreters attempted to frame it, um, you know, in a religious history as a turning point, perhaps, mm-hmm. that the Akedah marks a transition from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice, or that it somehow shows that Yahweh is different, better than the so-called pagan gods of the surrounding peoples. Yeah. But we've got plenty of examples of animal sacrifice as the biblical norm before this mm-hmm. point, right? So I think the argument doesn't hold water in the biblical tradition. Cain and Abel's story includes animal sacrifice, as does the end of the flood story when Noah offers an animal sacrifices that mm-hmm, pleases mm-hmm, the Lord. Mm-hmm. In this story, Isaac also clearly has participated in ritual animal sacrifice before, and he seems ignorant of the possibility of human sacrifice um, as a practice. His question in verse 27 notes that Abraham has the fire, the knife, and the wood, but he wonders where the sheep might be. So he's familiar with the normal equipment for worship of this sort. He doesn't imagine yet that he might be the one that ends on the altar. Mm -hmm. So while God ultimately doesn't demand Isaac's sacrifice, God still approves of Abraham's willingness to offer up his son. Mm -hmm. You said that right at the top, Mm -hmm. right? This is commendable to God, and that's something we should contend with. Uh, The story gets tidied up. Some of the horror gets cleaned up because it seems to end well. 
but that does the story a disservice. I wonder how Abraham and Isaac's relationship changed in that moment. What did Isaac see in his father's eyes as he was being bound and lifted up onto that altar wood? Did Isaac feel betrayed by his mm-hmm. father? Is there any recovery from a moment like this? Can you imagine the aftermath? Mm-hmm. Abraham untying his son after the angel's reprieve, helping him off the altar? Can you imagine the two of them as they prepared the ram to be sacrificed as a substitution mm-hmm. on that same altar? What kind of worship takes place in the wake of the Akedah? Does that confuse you as much as it does me? What about Sarah? I have questions oh, about yeah. that. At the start of the next chapter, mm-hmm. Genesis 23, Sarah's not living in Beersheba with Abraham. She dies in Hebron, about 20 miles away. Uh, and the circumstances for the distance are not explained. And I, I don't see any commentators really picking up on this. But after what Abraham had nearly done to their son, I can't imagine how the two of them uh, went about with things as normal. Mm-hmm. It seems as though there might have been a distance from this point. Uh, I can't say for certain, but I suspect that things could not be the same. Preachers, I'm I'm asking, don't fall for the pitfall. Don't clean up the raw edges of the Mm -hmm. story. If I can make one plea from the pews, the story is so gripping because it is unfathomable for us as normal people. It can't be explained away, but it can be opened up to our view. Yeah. Paul, are there any other pitfalls that you want to lift up to? I think there's something to be said about obedience and what obedience is, right? It, it's very easy to look at this text and read obedience as, oh, this is the thing that you do without thinking and questioning. Of course, we don't see the you know verbal protest of Abraham, but I'm sure there was some kind of resistance, even if it is internally, right? And and I think that there's something that this text allows us to do with what obedience is and what obedience is not, uh, because it's very easy to look at this text and, you know, define obedience as like the silencing tool. This is, this is what, this is what you have to do without questioning. This is, this is how you should think about obedience and not, um, you know, necessarily like ask questions or, um, you know, overthink things. And say that, oh, yeah, Abraham did so. And, you know, Abraham's level of obedience is the kind of obedience that we all should be looking out for. So, you know, if I were preaching this text, I think one of the things that I would take the time to help clarify is like, you know, how was Abraham actually feeling about this whole thing? And what does this tell us about what obedience is and what obedience is not? Yeah, that's really, I mean, it's helpful too to just, because in, in our world today too, there's been so much more attention to religious abuse, Yeah. Um, to the ways that, as you say, obedience can be twisted into this unquestioning um, obedience. Yep. Um, and so one way that I might approach this story in light of what you've raised in terms of obedience is to underscore how deeply the story influenced the religious consciousness of the Jewish people right. and in turn Christians too. So if I could raise up one point. So on, on Rosh Hashanah, mm-hmm. the Jewish New Year, mm-hmm. the Musaf, the additional service calls upon God to remember the oath that God swore at the time of the Akedah. Mm. And that prayer reads uh, to me significantly. So it reads, remember Abraham's binding of Isaac, his son on the altar, how he suppressed his compassion in order to perform your will wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. In the same way, may your compassion overcome your anger toward us. On behalf of Abraham's posterity, may you this day recall with compassion 
the binding of Isaac. Now that's a, a complicated way of playing with uh, with the thing that you're pointing to, which is maybe inward resistance, yep. uh, and yet some sort of um, pull toward obedience. But here to call on God to remember with particularity mm-hmm. the faithfulness of Abraham in the story, in the Akedah, and the special relationship that that forged between God and the descendants of Abraham forever even as God judges sins and shortcomings, there's something to be said there about this back and forth that is central to this idea of covenant, Mm -hmm. right? So the spiritual credit, the merit that Abraham earned when he bound and nearly sacrificed his son created a reservoir that generations in the future could draw upon before God. Mm. So even the blowing of the shofar, the ram's mm-hmm. horn on the new year is interpreted in light of the Akedah and what nearly happened on Mount Maria. So in that story, a ram with its horns caught in a thicket takes the place of Isaac mm-hmm. in sacrifice. Mm-hmm. This is how powerful and enduring the binding of Isaac became. It forms the basis for prayer, the blowing of that shafar, the psalms that lament, that complain bitterly about God who has forgotten, who has abandoned, who has not held up God's side of the covenant. So Psalm 13, the psalm for this week, this Sunday, it howls. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? Those prayers can be uttered with such intensity because they draw upon the memory of the Akedah. Mm-hmm a sense of the covenant, the acts of faith and loyalty, not just on God's part, Mm -hmm. but on the Jewish people's part as well. So Israel, Abraham's descendants, and God, they are covenanted together in a relationship that is sealed by events like the Akedah, Mm -hmm. alongside other events of faith that are recounted in the Bible by fathers and mothers of faith, and not recounted in the Bible, they're just told. Mm. Uh, uh, Another way that I might um, suggest preachers think about this text, um, is that now that I have become a new parent myself, I, I look at this passage a little differently. Mm-hmm. As horrified as I remain by the choice that Abraham made, I find a challenging message here for me personally. Now, mm. I, I realize that every child holds promise, bears our dreams, carries a legacy. Mm-hmm. And as much as I might hope that my kid will carry forward a legacy of me, my family, whatever that means, to live a life of faith and loving service, I don't control her. God holds her life in God's hands. And that's an ultimate truth. Mm. I might baptize her, dedicate or christen her with every intention of raising her in faith. But ultimately, she chooses God. She chooses life. Those are her choices, Mm. not mine. Mm -hmm. And as much as parents sacrifice and protect, parenting also requires a willingness to let go, to give up, to listen, to obey. Mm -hmm. In the end, we don't hold our children's lives, their legacies, their futures in our hands. That belongs to God. And it always has. So Abraham's willingness speaks to me. Um, In his willingness to give up his son, he paints maybe a larger than life example. But Mm -hmm. in some sense, we all might understand what he was expressing through that act. Mm -hmm. All those years of waiting for a child and finding disappointment year after year had contributed something to his faith. I think on some level, he realized Ishmael and Isaac were deep down gifts from God, sons that he had received very late in life when it was beyond reasonable human expectations. Mm -hmm. These two sons, they were gifts of God. So when God asked Abraham to let each one go, he could by trusting God to see to it as he names this very space. Um, Ishmael in Genesis 21, and then Isaac in Genesis 22, Abraham lets them go, trusting somehow that God will fulfill the covenant 
even if he couldn't see it clearly. Mm. So I'd invite preachers to really reflect on what it means to call Abraham a father of our Mm. faith, painful and difficult as that might be, right? So both in terms of his obedience, um, the horrifying um, consequences of that obedience, and then also the possibility of that kind of obedience. What does that open up to us as people of faith? Mm. So what about you, Paul? Is is there anything you want to raise up as a preaching angle? I couldn't say it any better than you have, you know, (laughs) like you making the connection between parenting, um, letting go versus the things that we have control over. I think that is like deeply profound. And I think that there's something also to be said about, you know, our ability to give off the only gifts, the only precious gifts that we wait so long for God to give to us, right? There's something to be said about that. Our willingness and ability to be able to let go of those things, if even if God requires us to. I think that speaks of how much we trust, um, how much we are willing to give off, um, how much, you know, we are willing to uh, sacrifice for the sake of our own faith and relationship with God. And, and I think that's a, a profound, you know, you know, faith statement that, uh, you know, preachers might uh, take advantage of and, and expound a little bit on that uh, to see how uh, other members in their congregations can learn from, you know, this action that we, we see in Abraham's life. Well, folks, we could probably keep on talking all day about this. This is really interesting stuff, but... Let's leave it right here. Uh, Thank you for helping us through this passage, Rosie. You're welcome. Friends, uh, we hope you found something helpful in our discussion today. Remember, you can find an episode on nearly every passage in the lectionary by using our search box on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. While you are there, take a look at our mesh and make a donation to help keep this podcast going. And a big thank you to you, everyone who has already made a donation. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you found this episode or this podcast helpful, leave us a review on our Apple or Spotify or wherever you find us. Until next time, my name is Paul Essa. And I'm Rosie Candethal. Have a great week. Yay. Yay.